And, uh, yeah, let's begin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for a chance to learn and grow in your grace and knowledge. Equip us to love and serve one another in the same heart and spirit of Christ. Filled with your spirit to be the special possession of people you've called us to be. Amen. So, going through our Old Testament surveys, looking at one book a week. And this week, we come to the book of Judges, which I've titled Life Without a King. Life Without a King. This is a good summary of the book of Judges. Um, I'm going to begin, though, by reading something over the New Testament from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 32-34, and I'll read that for you, because, uh, because, because you'll see why. And what more shall I say? So, chapter 11 of Hebrews is the book, right? It's the great hall of faith. So, there's a number of people mentioned. Whoever wrote the, the uh, letter to this church, uh, <coughs> these, these Hebrew audience, was commending people over the history of the people of Israel's uh, race and experience for their faith. And the great obstacles that have been overcome through faith, uh, through trust uh, in God and what he's done in Christ and what he was doing as uh, preparing earth for Jesus. And so in this chapter, he's talking about defining what faith is, talking about it's the, it's what we, it's the substance of things hoped for, it's the, it's the confidence of things that we really can't yet see, which is not to be confused with right, just sort of a blind leap into a dark chasm. Faith always has reason behind it. Faith always is established upon things as I think it was Irenaeus said, St. Irenaeus of the first century said, faith is established upon things truly real, that we may know what is as it is, and knowing what is as it is, we may keep our confidence in it sure. So, faith isn't just this sort of, well, I don't know if it's there, if it's not, I'm just going to choose to believe it. Faith first goes through, the. it's a very rational thing. You shouldn't have faith in stupid things. Okay? You shouldn't have faith in things that aren't proving themselves trustworthy. Okay? So, 11.32-34, to 34, it gets to this point where he's talking about some of the characters we're going to encounter in the Old Testament book of Judges. He says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, or Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. To be included in the list that God has chosen to honor people of faith with for all history, to make that narrow list, is absolutely baffling when you consider, as we will, these men from the time of Judges. Okay? And we're, gonna, we're just going to be sort of taking a look at three or four of them, but three in particular. Because these would not be people that you would think qualify for that sort of commendation. Okay, so we have, you'll see Barak or Barak, all right, who really wasn't even the hero of the narrative. Deborah was. Okay, Deborah was the, the singular, the only judge, female judge in Israel's history, in the history of the judges. Okay? Uh, and I think when we look at these people, perhaps since they're commended here, we've best understood as, you know, compromised faith. Okay? A faith that's compromised to a certain extent. But that faith played a role in the lives of these judges. And we'll get into what is a judge exactly. It's not a judge as in our judicial system. We'll talk about what a judge is. It was the kind of faith that you would expect from the time that they were in. Okay? And the conditions that they were subject to. Now remember we're talking about people 3,500 years ago. Okay? This is a very long time ago. And the revelation that they had from God to that point was incomplete to say the least. 
Okay? They had the Mosaic Law, of course, which, which embodied in the whole Mosaic Law was the revelation of who God is and what holiness is. They knew that much. They knew. They had begun to know who God was. Israel had begun to know who God was, what he was like, and how he did something wonderful in choosing the people for himself, through whom he would reveal himself to the nations so that the world could know God. So far away were they from, from God. And then, uh, so we see in chapter 11, verses 39 through 40, and these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, God equipped them and gave them what they needed for that time in part of his overall plan of revealing who he is, what was going to ultimately happen to Jesus, what would be the history of God's church and his people. And so they had promises from God, but they didn't get to see the fullness of those promises like we have. Okay? It says when they wouldn't be made perfect, it means they wouldn't be made complete. They wouldn't realize completion until we were part of that assembly as well. So God, over the course of time, is getting himself this whole assembly, calling people to himself. But to the extent that they did have faith and that they did show it, their faith was commensurate with the degree of understanding and exposure to the truth that they did have. Okay? Which was, which was actually a lot for that time. I mean, you would have to take a careful look and we have no time to do that. And what was going on in the ancient Near East? What was ancient Mesopotamia like? And it was just full of all kinds of notions about what God was like and what humans were like. You can read any of the creation accounts from those times and find out about, you know, of course the big difference was gods, the gods were dependent upon man. They needed man in order for them to be satisfied. They needed man's worship. They needed man to provide. They needed men to do this kind of thing. And so you get these bizarre creation stories, right? Of how, you know, this God fought that God and this God had sex with this God and this God swallowed up that God and the ocean devoured this one. And it, it's all these crazy, so just these... Earth at that point, people at that point, humans at that point had gotten, had really very little clue as to truly what God was like. If we want to know somebody, that somebody has to reveal themselves to us, right? I could tell you all day long about my sister Amy. Okay? My daughter Aurora, somebody, just, just met Amy for the first time, summed her up rather nicely as they say. Amy, she said, Amy's really calm, but she's really crazy. <laughs> so I could tell you things about Amy and I could tell you things about Liam. Right? But that's not really a first-person account, is it? They would reveal to you who they are over the course of spending time with them, hearing from them, that kind of thing. Same thing with God. So you can know a little bit about them and say, yeah, I met Pat's uh, sister and Pat's uh, nephew. And that, that's about it. You couldn't say a whole lot about them. You could make up stories. Oh, yeah, I heard she was a chef and she worked in Key, lived in Key West and, and, and she lives in St. Augustine. But by the time the story got around to the sixth person that heard it, Oh, yeah, I heard she was Minnie Mouse character over at Disney, and, uh, you know, she, she burnt down the kitchen there, so she had to go work in Key West. You know, yeah. you have to know from the person. So God's got to reveal himself, or we won't know him. Um, so our faith, then, should be greater still, shouldn't it? Because we have seen the greatest revelation of God, as Scripture says, in the face of Jesus. We've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So, as God reveals himself to us. Through Jesus, we have a real idea and understanding. Because remember, Jesus said what? He who has seen me has seen... That's right. If you want to know what God is like, you've got to know Jesus and what Jesus is like. You have to study and know him and, and, and you come to faith in him that way. 
Colossians as well, you know, he is the image of the invisible yeah. God. Yes, exactly. Hebrews, the, he's the imprint of his nature, the exact representation of his being. Jesus represents God precisely and exactly, with no flaw. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike us. On our best days, we say, yeah, he's a pretty godly guy, but that's Bill Gilmeister, man. Watch out. Right? <laughs> so, um, at the best, we can say that they had an incomplete faith for an incomplete time, but they're commended for completing what they were called to complete. <laughs> okay? So maybe that's, that's the best we can say about it. Now remember our Old Testament survey sort of her- hermeneutical key. And again, what's hermeneutics is the, 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 the art and discipline of studying ancient texts. Okay? Or any text, not just scripture. Everything that we want to study from antiquity is subject to hermeneutics. Which again, which, that's the, the craft and the skill of saying, okay, what was the original language like? What does it mean now if you translate it, et cetera, et cetera. So the thing that's guiding us, the principle is, we want to talk about the, the big, what's the, what's the big story of all scripture again, if we're going to sum it up in one little sentence? What's the, the, grand, uh, the grand narrative? Uh, in my daughter's education, I was talking to the, uh, the director of academic affairs for the Spencer East Brookfield Regional School District. And he said there's a little tool that they use called the gist of it. And that's to be able to help train a kid to get like a whole paragraph to be able to describe it in three or four words. Right, so, that's what we're, that's what, so when I say that, what's the gist of the scripture? What am I talking about? What do we say that is? God's, God's rulership of God's kingdom, right? That's the big picture. God's rulership of his kingdom. And then within that, we find those other two sort of subcategories uh, to, to guide our study, right? And that's what? Man's response to God's rulership of his kingdom. And then thirdly, God's response to man's response. <laughs> right. right? So, so that's, that's what's guiding us as we summarize because again, we could spend any amount of weeks, years, volumes have been written about individual books of these. So remember then that God made a covenant with Abraham to make him the father of many nations, to give the Israelites land and a blessing, and again, to be the special people that he called, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. And he gave them his wonderful law, right? He gave them a wonderful law. God chose Israel, not for anything they did, not for anything in them, right? They were at least among the peoples to a, to a, to a degree. But again, out of his own sovereign choice. And they were to receive this blessing for a purpose, right? What just for them? They were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a revelation of God's grace and mercy to sinful, rebellious humanity. Okay? To show how God is gracious and extends mercy and summons people to relationship with himself. Because without it, we're incomplete at best. So it's really how to live in relationship with God. What was required for God to be among his people? How can a great and holy and wonderful God dwell among <coughs> such refuse as we can be at times? Right? How does those two go together? Yeah, yeah. Um, Exodus 25, 4. Make me a sanctuary mm. yeah. that I might dwell among them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Make me a sanctuary. So, and then what do we know about God? Well, he delivered them from slavery. He performs all kinds of wonders among them. He provides for them in the wilderness. And what's their response? Complaints. They rebel and complain. <laughs> that was their response, right? Yep. God didn't do what they wanted him to do, when, where, and how they wanted to do it. In other words, they were greatly annoyed at God's insistence on being God. <laughs> yeah. But they are, right? That's what, that's what we are. Yeah. That's what humans are sometimes. On the best day, we're very annoyed at God's <laughs> insistence on being God. So they fall into idolatry. Remember, idolatry isn't just bowing down to a wooden image or a gar- carved image. 
is, is we've talked about this, so all kinds of things can be idols. Money, sex, power, politics, donuts. <laughs> so what happens? Huh? So what happens? Because of their unbelief, because of all this stuff, God says, none of you of the original people that left, uh, that left Egypt over the age of 20, none of you are going to go into the promised land except for two of them, Caleb and Joshua, right? Because they believed and they trusted. The rest of God said, you're going to die in the wilderness. And then he started over. Yeah, he was. He was. He started out with a new group of people, the second generation, right? So he started all over with them. Now, Joshua, now we're at the point, so we studied Joshua last week, and now we're at that point, I'm just going to quickly read through in, in Joshua, uh, chapter 21, verses 41 to 45, just to give us a little summary of where we're at now as we begin to take a look, again, still a little bit by way of introduction. Going a little quick because we've got a lot of material, but... <coughs> Joshua was, was amazing. He was amazing. 21 to 45. So, so 41 to 45. The cities of the Levites in the midst of... Um, well, let's start at 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord God gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers, like the patriarchs. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord, hand, the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So this is why, for example, we don't agree with some in, in the various denominations that believe that God, that Israel still has an inheritance that's waiting from God and a special land and all that. Every promise God made to Abraham was fulfilled, with the exception, of course, of the fulfillment of the promised seed, which is Jesus, which we, we learn about later on. So, again, how does Israel respond within one generation? A.W. Tozer, was around the 40s, 50s, said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right? What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We see in chapter 1 of uh, Judges that they absolutely failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land as God commanded them. God wanted them driven out. Why? Why did God want to drive all the people out? Mean old God didn't want those Canaanites there anymore. Why did God want to drive out all the people of the lands they were sending Israel to? Exactly, right? God knew that if they, if they didn't, then they would begin to mingle with the people over there. They'd begin to sort of fall into their practices, right? And they would begin to... This is human nature, right? So God said, no. By the way, God has the right to do that. He has the right to... to, to God has the right to move people out. He has the right to ultimately destroy all them if He wanted to. He's gracious and merciful. Sends in a people that's going to show them, right? But also, drives them out. And then we see that the angel of the Lord appears. Okay? Sometimes in Scripture, we understand that the, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord is who? Jesus. Right. Yeah, so it's... it's yeah, so it's what they call a, in high theological terms, a pre-incarnate Christophany. Right? In other words, it's Christ making himself known in, 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 in an obscure kind of way. Before his incarnation, wow. uh, it's, it's not pressing that we sort of get our head around that for the uh, what we're looking at here. But he says, um, I, I think I, well, I think I chose the wrong. I think I chose the wrong address again. Yeah, verses ten to twelve. I think I, I got the wrong scripture. No, I got it. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation 
after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How is that possible? How could they not teach them? Yeah, well, that's a great point, right? How could they not teach them? They had festivals and they had, they had all kinds of things that God gave them for the remembrance of who God is and what he does. Mm-hmm. The Passover, all these festivals, all these... That verse again? The whole sacrificial system, chapter 10, yeah. chapter 2 of Judges, verses 10 yeah. through 10, uh, just 10, I'm sorry, just 10. Okay. But then you go through verse 12, and the people of Israel did what was evil on the sight of the Lord, and, Lord, and served the Baals, or the Baals, which is just idols, false gods. It was a big god. Baal was a huge god in that day. He was, okay, in that area. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And so that's where we're at as we begin to take a look at these judges. And then in verse uh, chapter uh, 14, <coughs> verse 14 through the end of uh, through the first half of chapter three, we get a summary of everything else that's about to follow. Okay, and Albert Bayless that sums it up well. He says it is a cycle of sort of four S's: sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. So they fall into the sin of idolatry and taking on the practices of the people. So God delivers them to their enemies. Says, okay, here you want it, here you go. So he gives them over. And then supplication. Then they, after, after a period of time, they cry out to God for help. And they repent. They cry out to him to rescue them. And God turns around and saves them from the enemies. And they have a period of peace. And then, boom, they fall right back into the same habit again. Okay? Now, the rest of the book is bizarre, bloody, and barbaric. Right? Things get progressively worse until the very end. Israel is on the brink of civil war. God's chosen people. And in fact, the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. Almost completely wiped out. Just, just 600 or so left. Okay? And then they had to go steal wives for the Benjamites from, from other places. The Benjaminites. So the, ben, the tribe of Benjamin is almost obliterated. And we see these, these statements showing up four times in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king. Okay? And so that should, be, that should be giving us a clue. Okay? There's definitely a, that is definitely a textual clue there as to what's going on. Why is that repeated four times? Okay? Now, in two of those instances, it's also followed by, and each man did, every man did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But first of all, it's all that there was no king in Israel. And so, what we begin to see is the need for kingship. A need for that sort of authority, that sense of centrality, that sense of something that transcends just everyone sort of doing their own thing. Okay? Which is, is embedded so deeply in our culture now. So deeply in our culture. <clears throat> so much so that we can't even agree on what a word means anymore. How can you have... You know, one of the most difficult... In order to have a, a, a nation, you need to have a land. You need to have, you need to have a geography. You need to have a, land, you need to have a language. This is yeah. fundamental to human relationship and to human flourishing. Without it, you can't have either. When, in what's called philosophical terms, postmodernism set in, and which still obtains to this day, what you get is what's called... Uh, and, and part of that, the, the study of linguistics is... Basically, words don't really have any one single meaning. It's just what you say they mean. Now, you wouldn't think that that would be true, but that is exactly where we're at. Okay? So, any, and that's why we get terms like 
A Supreme Court Justice, with all her great learning, could not answer the question, what is a woman? She would not answer that question. Right? And why? Because we are at that place. Well, we can't even under, we can't even agree on what a term means. It means whatever you want it to mean. How can you possibly go? From, how can it, we need a great act of God? We need a great act of mercy. We need again. So, and this is followed again by every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, that's exactly where we are as a culture. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Well, what you say is good for you, and what you say is good for you, and as long as you're not hurting anybody. Whoever said that was the standard? What did we ever stop and say, well, wait a minute, what's the standard of not hurting anybody is the standard? When did that become the standard? Okay, it's a good idea not to hurt anybody, but who said that that is the standard by which ought to be the pinnacle that we all aim to? And who defines what hurt is? And who defines how people get hurt? Right? If a man is all by himself in his house looking at child pornography, who's he hurting but himself? I'll just leave it there like that. So, this book covers 12 of these judges... Okay, which are more like sort of... So a judge in this case isn't... Um, uh, it's not like in our judicial system, okay? A judge is more like a regional political leader or like a tribal chieftain for that, for that time, okay? And, but they were... You know, God put them in place for a particular reason. They were God's... Uh, that was really the only um, leadership office that God had instituted among the people at that time. Now that Moses, the great intercessor and mediator of God's first covenant had died, and Joshua, who was the torch of past who had died, there was no one single great leader like that anymore now. Now there were these judges that had been in place before anyway, but that's all there was now. But they were supposed to teach and to model the law and provide leadership and military and administrative oversight of God's people. That was their role. That was their responsibility. Okay? That's how the nation was supposed to endure. And for that to work, we'll see this throughout the book as well, God sends His Spirit onto the person to perform this work from time to time. Okay? In other words, it takes a divine empowerment for these judges to accomplish what God needs them to accomplish, wants them to accomplish for His purposes. So unlike, you know, we... I'll get bogged down on this, but the Scripture teaches and Jesus taught it. When you come into a relationship with God, a right relationship with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Right? When in repentance we turn from self and sin and idolatry to the true and living God, right? And we become His by faith. When that happens, we also have God. The only words we have are the words He give us. He dwells within us. He's sort of in us. And we can't get into what all that means because it's hard to believe sometimes. But in those days, it wasn't that kind of an intimate union because because humans weren't quite purified, weren't holy enough yet. The, 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 the Lamb of God had not died. The, 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 the outpouring of God's wrath, God's dealing with fallen humanity hadn't taken place. The, 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 the essential tabernacle, which is us, had not been fully prepared, wasn't cleansed until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But until then, God was still, because He's God, He could just pour out His Spirit. He could just pour His divine power, His divine rationale, His divine reason, His divine purpose, His divine priority on a person so that they're empowered even physically empowered in a supernatural way to accomplish His will. And we see that show up at times. And it's a good thing too because if it weren't for that, I, I was I, talking about Job a little bit this week, but in Job chapter 34, verses 13 and 15, God says, that scripture says, who appointed Him over the earth? Okay? 
Who, who put him in charge of the world? If it were his intention, he, he, he could withdraw his spirit and breath and all humanity would perish altogether. All mankind would return to dust. Okay? If God chose to withdraw his spirit, we would no longer endure. But it, it, it's like spiritual oxygen in a sense. We can't function. Without the generous and gracious supply of God's spirit, we just simply would not be. Okay? And so that's how important it is. And we see this, okay? So, so we have this imperfect people. We have, as we're going to see, these judges who are such a potpourri of, you know, profound barbarity and faith. <laughs> judges 3.10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, referring to Othniel, the first of the three of the judges. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave... Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And into his hand he prevailed over Kushan Rishathaim by the Spirit of God. Again, Judges 6, 3, 4. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Another judge we'll look at. And he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. Again, over in, in Jephthah, who we'll talk about. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed out and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Amorites. Let's talk about military conquest. Through the Spirit of the Lord. And then, and then we read another example on Samson, who we'll take a look at. Then the, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Samson. To just all of a sudden be... just We know what it, all know what it's like to all of a sudden have like a... Just to be overcome with grief. Or to be overcome with anger. Or to be overcome with you know, jealousy or something. But to be all of a sudden overcome with the divine presence and the divine power so that God could accomplish something. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his mother and father what he had done, you know, for whatever reason. So he had a super endowment of physical power with which to destroy, you know, the king of beasts, you know, the lion. You know, and he, that's, I mean, that's not a made up story. I mean, he, he did that. Yeah. You know, again, if, if we can believe in the resurrection, we should have no trouble believing anything else. I mean, Denise gave me, I think she was repeating you recently. She said that if scripture said that Jonah swallowed the giant fish, I would believe it, <laughs> as opposed to the giant fish swallowing Jonah, right? So, let's take a look at just four of these 12 judges and also. Barak or Barak, um, let's call him Barak. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> uh, he wasn't a judge. But so again, three of these are mentioned in the letter of Hebrews, and that great record of what people of, of faith were able to overcome. All right, and that's Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Okay, we'll take a look at them. We'll also look at Barak, who wasn't a judge. But I want to begin with the, with the fifth one. I want to begin with the fourth one. That's Ehud, just because the story is so bizarre. Well, it's really Ehud, who is, he, he's not mentioned, all right, in, in Hebrews. Doesn't mean he didn't have faith, but the story is so bizarre and so typical of the strangeness of these narratives that it, 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 it definitely bears inclusion in our study. And, and this is as good as anything we see in our movies, or anything that we can invent. Of all the, the fiction that we can come up with, there's nothing that can capture the imagination like truth. I mean, truth can truly be stranger than fiction. So, Set the stage. Israel was delivered over 
Uh, he's delivered from the Mesopotamians by Othniel. Okay, you, go, you see that. Again, he's the first of the twelve judges. So they were being oppressed by the Mesopotamians because of their sin. They cried out to God. God raises up this judge, Othniel, to be the deliverer. Uh, they had sinned against God. Okay, So 40 years of peace they had after that. And then, as they were wont to do, they started acting foolishly and evil again. So God delivers them over to the Moabites all right, and to King Eglon. And Scripture makes the point that Ehud is a left-handed Benjaminite. And that would be rare anyway. Left-handed is fairly rare as it is, right? Bill's got his pen in his left hand, right? He's a sword, right? And so, the reason why that's significant is he got to hide a little dagger in his right thigh, which is where he not. Now, I don't know if they frisked people when they went to see the king in those days, but they didn't see him with a sword geared. You know, they didn't see him with a sword on him or, or, or anything, right? That, and, and that, but that's because it was hidden in his right thigh. All right? They were not expecting that, right? So Ehud goes to uh, King Eglon. He's pretending to bring him tribute, right? So, okay, so we're subject to you. I'm going to bring you tribute, right? So he arranges to meet privately with Eglon, right? They move, they get all the people out of the house. And then we take a look at chapter 3 and this bizarre story, verses 18 to 23. He says, uh, now it does mention, by the way, it does mention back in in verse 17, it says, in Eglon, uh, Ehud presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and makes it a point to say here, now Eglon was a very fat man. Okay? Makes that point. Points that out in scripture. All right? And so it goes on, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded the king to silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade. He did not pull the sword out of the belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof behind him and just left. So the, the, yes, the, the whole handle and everything got swallowed up by this huge king's stomach. Yes. Go back to 16, and it'll tell you the size of the sword, too. Okay, yeah, it made himself a sword with two wedges, a cubit in length. So a cubit is about 18 inches, okay, depending on the average size of a man's hand at the time. So, okay, so he plunged that into him. So much so, again, that the, the, his, his body just swallowed the sword. And such a bizarre story, right? And, and, you, and I think, okay, so now what's that all about? So obviously God's giving delivery, leaves no evidence at all, of, of what happened, right? There's no, there's no, not that they could have fingerprinted in those days, but there's, there's, not even a, there's not even a sword. So when his people came in, there was no sword, and he's just bleeding, and his dung is all over the floor. They're like, what happened, right? There's no weapon there. It's still inside him. And I think, I think what God was doing there, I think two things. So he's rescuing Israel, but he's also disgracing this Mesopotamian, this, this king, this Moabite king. But this is how Eglon will be remembered throughout history. This is how this king has been. Just a total disgraceful way to be known. That's how he died. Just died in humiliation. Right? And that's what God thinks about idolatry. That's what God thinks about 
Because remember, mm-hmm. if we're idolatrous to God, we're going to be mistreating other human beings. Period. If, if, if you're someone that's ungracious, if you, you can even look at yourself and examine yourself at times. If you find yourself with a particular tendency to react to certain people in a certain way, I encourage you to go on an idol hunt. Mm-hmm. Get into your heart and go idol hunting. Because somewhere in there, there's an idol. Somewhere in your heart, there's a little idol in there that is, and what I mean by that, it's giving you direction, it's motivating you, there's something in there. Something in there is going on. Something's competing for God's affection there that you've allowed. Again, it's our need. And God is happy to deliver us from it without sticking a sword all the way up to the hilt in our stomach to do it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Okay, let's hop over to Barak. So, Deborah was actually the judge, we call him, not Barak, right? But, and so why is Barak remembered as a man of faith? Why isn't Deborah mentioned in the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Faith? Plenty of other women were. Why not her? I don't know, but I know that Barak honors God by honoring his appointed judge, okay? In fact, he says to Deborah, if, I, if you don't go with me, he gets, she summons him to war and lead the warriors, because he was a warrior. She summons him to go lead in the attack, and he says, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. Well, he wasn't being a whimper or a coward. He, he recognizes that's God's judge. Okay? And, and, and so he wants her to have, I think, some of that, that victory. Even when he's told, she says to him, Deborah says, the glory is going to go to a woman if I go with you. You're not going to receive the glory. He didn't really care. That didn't, that didn't stop him either. So set was he in, in intent, I believe. So he goes and they have this great word against the great general Sisera from the enemies. And the battle ensues, right? The Canaanites are routed. Canaanites are routed. And Sisera escapes to a friendly land into a tent of what should be a friendly woman. And what does she do? <laughs> she gives him a glass of warm milk when he asks for water, goat milk. And while he's laying down falling asleep, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his temple. And the scripture says it goes all the way through one temple and comes out the other side. This book is barbaric. <laughs> yes, Mark. I can still remember my grandmother describing that to me. <laughs> she read it when I was a little kid. And it, you know, it stuck with me all these, all these years. Well, what else? Funny. Did I mean, she, said, she said, can you imagine trying to oh. pick, get up and pick up his head? Well, that would be a quick, yeah. That would be a quick, yeah. And not only so, but the thing that's interesting about that is you see a woman doing this violence. Right? That says something too, right? We typically don't, you know, when we think of violence and all that stuff, we don't often think of women doing that. That's why it's disturbing that, you know, I guess in order to be a woman, if there's a male Superman, there has to be an exact replica female Superman, right? It's like, you can't, and our, and our message to women is, you can't really be a woman until you can emulate man fully. Forget about all the preciousness of being a woman. You can't really be a fully, women can't be fully represented until they're doing everything a man is doing in the exact same way. And so, and so, but this again, just to make the point that human nature has not changed, God is still dealing with what's in our nature, and He has dealt with it ultimately and finally in Jesus. But look at the history, and then we have Gideon the wimp. All right, Gideon the wimp, I call him, because he was a wimp. All right, he's always kind of, oh, I can't do it. I'm going to have a wine understand. But okay, so God raises him up to rescue Israel after forty years of rest again before Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, and I've got, uh, I've got verse 15 here, so it must be chapter 8. Uh, no, I don't know what it is. I don't even know I have verse 15 there, but I, I don't know. It doesn't even matter. It's just, it's just the point of this. I know God sends His Spirit upon Gideon to do His work, but He destroys the idolatrous altar of Baal. Now, the thing that's interesting about that, 
is that altar is in his father's house. Okay? So, there's a time to honor your mother and father, and there's a time to tear down their false gods. Okay? Go into your father's house, and destroy his idols, burn down the altar that's in his house. Okay? So he does that. That's faith. And then, he, and then he gets to the point where he's doing what God wants him to do, but he asks God for a sign. You know, can, I'm going to put this, this lamb's fleece down, Lord. Could you just make the dew show up on just the fleece, but not the surrounding ground? And then I'll know it's you, I'll, for sure. And then he just does the opposite. He says, I hope you won't mind my asking again, Lord, but this time would you just keep the fleece dry and make the ground all around it moist, right? He wants to be absolutely sure that it's God, because he wants to put his faith and his trust in the right place. He does get some assurance from that. Now, just because we see something described in Scripture doesn't mean we see something prescribed in in Scripture, right? Not everything that's descriptive is also prescriptive. In other words, just because we see somebody do something and and God responds in a certain way doesn't mean that God from now on wants us to do things like, all right, I'm going to throw my flannel out on the ground tonight, Lord. (laughs) Right? So he defeats... And then, and then the God says, okay, just, just to show you, I, I don't want man to try to get the glory for this, because God knows the tendency of the human heart. I don't want man to take credit for this. So he has thousands of warriors to go to war. God says, no, peel, scale it back some. So they get it down to like a couple thousand. God says, no, that's still too many. So basically, he gets it down to 300 men. So God has given an attack the enemy with just 300 men, and they absolutely rout them. Okay? And then we come to Samson, right? Certainly the most famousest of judges, yeah. no doubt, right? I mean, we all grew up learning about Samson. Probably most of us, unless you grew up in a real <clears throat> consistently biblically studying home, won't recall Gideon. You won't recall, you know, uh, some of these other judges. You won't even call Jephthah, who we're going to review in a moment or two. Mm-hmm. But we all recall Samson. He's my favorite because he has hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He did. He had he had glorious hair. He had glorious hair like 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 you two guys. All right. He had he had he had this, and that was we'll see. Remember that was the source of his strength, right? I mean, I can respect these judges. I'm Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and he's particularly appealing, you know, to boys, you know, because of the whole stupid, you know, like big strong bird, right? But he is an absolute mess. And he's the first superhero, but he is a mess. He really is a mess. Now, he's set apart from birth as a Nazarite, which is what? What does that mean? He was set apart from birth as a Nazarite. What, what is that? you know what that is? That's uh, a vow to not uh, drink any wine yep. or cut their hair. That's right. right. And, and it's dedicated unto the Lord. That's right. It was a symbol of, of consecration. This one is consecrated, set apart. And by the way, uh, Samson is the only announced, other than Isaac... The child of promise. He's the only announced child in all of the scripture like that. I mean, we get a reference in Isaiah to there'll be Jesus someday, right? But this is the only sort of one to go with that degree of specificity. So something very special about Samson, okay? And he is promiscuous, and he is lustful, and he is arrogant, and he is impetuous, and he is at times full of faith. One guy says he's outwardly strong, the outwardly strong, inwardly unstable Samson, who can kill a thousand men with a donkey's jawbone, but can't find a lady friend who won't sell him out to the Philistines. <laughs> and it happened twice to him. Yeah. Right? He, he had that riddle about the lion, right? Yeah. And he wouldn't tell the people. So the people said, came to this, his Philistine girlfriend and said, tell us what the answer to the riddle is, or we're going to kill your family, burn down everything you have. So she goes and she, she complains to uh, Samson, right? 
And then with <laughs> with his wife. And first of all, he shouldn't have taken a Philistine woman to begin with. Right. He had no business being with the Philistines. But now he's got Delilah, right? And she just, you know, they want to know the source of the strength. This, this, this hag is going to sell him out. Yep. Right? So, so they, they keep her they promise him all. They promise her all this money. Tell us the source of the strength. Yeah. And, and he lies to her, fools her a couple times. He's toying with her. They say, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. So they'd come and attack, and Samson would just beat the snot out of all of them, right? Until finally she just weird. Scripture says she literally wears him down. The proverb says, uh, it talks about, you know, the, the constant nagging of a wife is like the steady dripping of rain. It's like, who can control her is like someone trying to hold grease, right? Yeah. Uh, now, look, we're saying a lot of awful things about the men in this thing, so don't take offense to that, right? But there's something about that in a relationship, that constant complaining and, and wearing him down. If I say, all right, all right, if you cut my hair... Boom, I'll be as weak as any man. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. They come running in. He thinks he's going to get up and just start, you know, doing that thing again. And they just, they just subdue him easily. Okay? So, and he, but he is often empowered by the Spirit, again, for the tasks that God gives to him. Again, tears a line apart with his bare hands. Okay? A couple months ago, there was a <clears throat> thing in the news. This rabbit, rabbit bobcat was chasing this woman around the minivan. She was trying to get away from it. Her husband comes up, picks up this bobcat, and he just throws it. <laughs> right? Just throws the thing, and he was like, you know, takes off. And it was rabid. You know, they had to both get shots and all that stuff. But I said, that's a good man, right? Goes out and he grabs that thing, right? He just picked up that bobcat, and he threw it like he owned that thing. No. And he literally, so, so he, he, he goes into battle. We know another time where he picked up, he just tore the city gates out of the city. And then another time he takes the jawbone of a freshly dead donkey... So he tears that off, says, hey, this make a pretty good weapon. Takes out a thousand people with it. What a battle that must have been. I mean, <laughs> let, your imagination go, let your imagination go wild. I mean, bone is a pretty solid thing. I mean, he killed people with a jawbone. You know, I just... But imagine, again, how gory everything that must have been. And then we end up, so we know what happens, right? So, so he does demonstrate faith at times. And, 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 and he says things... Um, he had said it somewhere else. So 16, we know that in 1622, this is very interesting. So <clears throat> he gets captured by the Philistines. They make a slave out of him. He's just down in this dungeon, just turning this big mill, this grinding mill. That's all he's doing now. Right? And they shaved all his hair, so he's completely weak. But then we get a little clue what's going on in chapter 16, verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And I think this might have been what led to one of Samson's greatest acts of faith. Now, I've heard other commentators say, even at the end, Samson was selfish. He wanted to just tear down the pillars and let the Philistines, his enemies, die with him. He was such an evil guy that he wanted to sort of, even in his last act, he wanted to just get vengeance. That's not what's going on at all. That's not what's going on at all. Even when he says, Lord, give me vengeance, let me, give me vengeance against the Philistines for my eyes, because they had gouged out his eyes. That was another very common practice in that time. When you subdued a king and you captured his territory, if you didn't kill that king, you would take him and you would literally, with your fingers, gouge out his eyes. Think of that pain, right? Look at all the violent, bloody people. Um, and so he's, he asks for vengeance on that. But I think Samson was beginning to feel, that's just what I think. And I think that, I don't think there's a problem with this in the text. His hair began to grow. I think he began to acknowledge that. He's blind, he can't see. He once in a while, he's feeling his hair starting to grow back. 
And he's starting to remember that the Lord his God set him apart from the womb as a Nazarite, consecrated him for a particular purpose, okay? And we read in verse 28, then Samson, and I think this is such a, so he's, they bring him up to entertain all the crowd, and he stands there and he asks this little kid, he says, hey man, put my hands up against the two columns, all right? Because they hadn't tied it. Place my hands on them, all right? And so he calls out to the Lord, he says, oh Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. But I think what's going on behind all that is because of the proximity of the text and the way that they're talking about this, and he says, please remember me. <coughs> That's everything that God had intended for Samson. Remember, remember me, the only one you consecrated from the womb. I, and I think... I'd like to think in that moment he was acknowledging a lot of things. His utter failures and everything else. And no desire for glory for himself to live and enjoy the conquer. No, no desire for, you know, let all the Philistines die and then let me, you know, be crowded and all. Let me just die with the Philistines. That's good enough for me. If I can be that consecrated Nazarite just one last time, get vengeance for my eyes, which includes, of course, destroying your, 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 the Philistines. And he wipes out more, says he killed more in his, in his death than he did his whole life. And God had raised him up to conquer the Philistines. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very powerful scene. Listening to, to you talk about this, it strikes me the similarities, the way that it, it's uh, typological of mm. Christ. Yes. So you have mm. his birth being announced. Mm-hmm. You've got that he's a, na- um, a Nazarite, which parallels like Jesus the Nazarene, mm-hmm. and then mm. he dies mm. to tear down the enemy's house sure. and destroy absolutely. his power. Yeah, you know, definitely the same thing that Christ. Does. Oh, absolutely. Yep, no question about it. He, Samson is very much the embodiment and, 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 and example of so many of us as well. As well as Jesus, the perfect human, but as well as the re- and, and mostly of all of Israel. I mean, he really represents and embodies in his one person so much of what Israel was. All right, get moving along a little quickly. We get over to Jephthah. Tim Mackey describes Jephthah as a mafia thug living up in the hills. Okay, <laughs> Scripture says he was a mighty warrior, but the son of a prostitute. Okay, and he was. He was the son of a prostitute. He had no inheritance in any land. He was living up in the hills. But he wasn't a warrior. And he knew a lot about the history of God's deliverance because he recites it to the Ammonite king when he gets into space. All right? When he's told to go up there and take him out. Okay? So he knew a lot about them. And he knew about the, the Ammonites' unwillingness to help Israel when they were coming through the desert. When they asked for help. And the Ammonites said, no, you just want to attack us. So they attacked the Israelites instead. God gave them victory. He gets to the point where he says to the Ammonite king, well, will you not possess what Shemash your God gives you to possess? Right in his face. Who's your God? What's he going to give you? Okay, what's the land you get to possess from your God? Then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. But Jephthah makes this crazy rash vow to God. He says, give me victory, God, and I'll sacrifice the very first thing that comes to my door to meet me when I come home. Right? I'll offer as a burnt offering. Now, if you don't remember a burnt offering, a burnt offering is one of the various offerings in the sacrificial system. And the burnt offering was supposed to be this, it actually means ascent. It's an ascent offering, something ascending. And what's ascending is the sacrifice of the animal, the smell of the animal, the burning, cooking. You know, yesterday I had a barbecue, man. It smelled great until the grill caught fire and everything. But, 
But it has that smell of it. Well, that sweet aroma raises up to God. Again, you know, God's given us a metaphor to understand Him by. And it was for reverence. It was the time for atonement, for wrongdoing. It was to sort of get back in God's good favor. Okay? So he, he makes this rash vow he never should have made. Because God never required that kind of vow. He never should have made it. And Jephthah lacks important knowledge about God. This is very important. He lacks important knowledge about God. He, he clearly knows something of the sacrificial, sacrificial system that the Israelites have gotten completely away from. Okay? Mixed knowledge about God is never a good thing. Okay? I'll get to that in a minute. So, and so the question is, so he, he has victory, and when he comes home, the first thing that comes out of his house is what? Daughter. His daughter. So the question is, did he, did he, so, so just to show you, right, how they're ingrained within among their enemies, it was common practice to sacrifice children to the gods of the, of the false religions, to Molech. Now, burnt offerings were supposed to be male. This was a public statement he made when he said, I'll offer up the first thing that comes through. So, people knew that he was going to do that. And so, this been, I think the overwhelming majority of commentators would say, yes, he did end up sacrificing. His daughter went off. But his daughter went off into the mountains with her friends for two months to grieve her virginity. And so, there are other commentators that suggest it's quite possible that what's happening is you know, Jephthah was the son of a prostitute. He had no land. He had no name. That was very important. He had no lineage. He was, he, his lineage would come through his daughter. For her to be a perpetual virgin would be for him to give up his claim to any inheritance, anything special promised to Israel. Okay, so that's a pretty big deal too. And they still had celebrations where they would go and celebrate uh, an annual sort of feast day where they would go and celebrate his, uh, his daughter's that, that quote-unquote burned offering. So whether he killed her or not, uh, or whether it was that, the, the bottom line being, he has no lineage, he has no... But most of all, it displays a, a, a mixed understanding about God, which I'll recapitulate in a moment. Okay, lastly, and the last thing that happens here really shows you just how messed up things have gotten in Israel is we have these two things going on, these two Levitical, two Levites. Okay? Now you recall the Levites, the tribe from which the priests came, not that all the priests, not, not that all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. So you got these two stories. One becomes a priest for an individual, right? This guy Micah just hires this wandering Levite to be his priest, right? And it's an idolatrous system. The guy's got idols in his house, okay? So there's this Levite who God has set aside the tribe for for ministry to God, intercession for the people. He goes with this guy Micah. He gets bought off to be a priest in an idolatrous system. And then the tribe of Dan comes along and says, hey, you could be a priest to one guy, you could be a priest to a whole tribe, which do you prefer? Not that he had any choice. So he became a priest to the tribe of Dan and all of their idols in idolatry. Okay? So what a, what a complete, a, a total loss of the sense of how priesthood functioned and why. Okay? How do we know that? Well, Micah says, when he got this Levite priest, he said, now that I know the Lord will prosper me. Right? So, and just, you know, you know, obviously, you know, there's no such thing as a sacred priesthood. That died in the Old Testament. Okay, Roman Catholicism is not accurate to have a, a separate priesthood. There is no such thing. In fact, the New Testament refers to every believer as part of the priesthood of God. Because every believer offers up the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and intercession. And everything. There is no distinction. There is no, there's leadership, but there is no priesthood. There is no sacerdotal or holy priesthood. That fulfilled its purpose in the Old Testament Mosaic Law. 
And that is one of the reasons why we disagree with our friends theologically in, in, the, in that faith. So, uh, then the second account of another Levite, this is the most bizarre story in all of Scripture. Again, how bad things had gotten. So he has a concubine, which is like a second wife. That's problematic, right? And he's traveling with this concubine, right? A Levite. And this, they come to the center of the city, and no one's taken him in yet, so it's, it's proper. Uh, an elderly gentleman takes him into his house for the night. Some wicked man, it says, come along during the night, pounding on the door, demanding that this guy come out so that they can rape him. Homosexually rape him. Okay? Send him out here so we can know him. Same thing that happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that's just not, hey, send him out here so we can get to know him. Alright? Send him out so we can know this guy. And, then, and this, I don't understand this. I can't get into it. He says, no, take my virgin daughter instead. Why that happens, I don't know. Okay? But I do know this. The, the concubine goes out and they abuse her all night long. The next morning, he finds her dead at the doorstep. This Levite priest takes her the dead body into the house, carves her up into twelve pieces, and sends one piece to every tribe in Israel. And that was so that they would be alerted that there's something horrible and awful has happened in Israel, an abomination has happened in Israel. And that's when they go out and they wipe out, because that, this happened in, in Gibeah of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. So they attacked Benjamin, all the rest of Israel. And they almost wiped out the entire tribe. Okay, So, Things are as bad as they can be at the end of Judges. I just want to take the last sort of two minutes to, to say, okay, what's, what's this for us? Well, I would say fractional or partial true knowledge about God is a dangerous thing. Fractional or partial even true knowledge about God is a dangerous thing when it's mixed with other things that aren't true about God. Mm-hmm. We were having a discussion yesterday at my home, a number of us, about, well, gee, what about the Native Americans? So the tribes of the Amazon, I mean, they worship God like they know Him, and they're very spiritual, right? And they worship God as they know Him, and here's the danger. As they know Him. And that's true for the, for the pygmy, and it's true for anyone now, any man in any civilized society. You know, Augustine said, after whom St. Augustine was named, Okay, he was the fourth century um, a Christian leader over in Hippo, right? Uh, part of Greece was that Northern Turkey? North Africa. North Africa. Sorry. Yeah. So he was a, he was a, a church leader there, and he said a lot of cool things. He was a, he was a great leader. But he said in his book Confessions, speaking of God, he says, "Without you, this is such a great. Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self destruction?" Right. Mm-hmm. You ever hear anything like that? Mm-hmm. So true. What is, without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? Now, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, he's praying to the Father, this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus whom you have sent. And again, eternal life isn't just quantity of years, it's quality of relationship with God. Right? It's something that can never be taken away. It's like always good. It's the everlasting God-stopper of gospel joy. Right? It just doesn't stop. And then over in 1 John, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why? So that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And that just doesn't mean kids. That was just a spiritual leader's way of addressing people. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And that sets us up for the study in Ruth and Samuel which we begin to see the workings of the beginning of the Davidic dynasty and the monarchy that comes through King David and how that is sort of something that gives us a, a movie trailer version of what we can expect in Christ, you know? So, anyway, Justin, please pray and close because we got to get folks out of here.
Dear Lord, your word is good. You reveal your holiness. Reveal yourself to us that we might know you in truth mm. and be changed by that knowledge. Mm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, folks. Just- <coughs>